0: Cause this is my Let's You're listening to the to Tom Ficklin Show on WNHHLP on, on, 103.5 on, SM, your up, home hey. for community radio. Salutations, Connecticut. Thank you, 103.5 FM New Haven. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Harry, for being our engineer today. Thank you, Tom Fricklin, for giving us this opportunity to. Uh, have some time on the air. Today, Connecticut and the world, I have one of the most influential activists and researchers and educators uh, on Paulo Freire and liberation uh, education with us today, Antonio Dada. And I'm gonna ask her to introduce herself quickly and tell us what her passion is. And I, I think I might know it, but she's also a poet. She's also a visual artist. So Antonia, could you? introduce yourself for us.
1: Oh my gosh, okay. Well, it's Antonia Tarder. I, um, I was born in Puerto Rico and I always remind people that I am a colonized subject of the United States, that Port- Puerto Rico continues to be a colony and that we continue to struggle for independence, despite the fact that that political struggle is often you know, under the radar. Most people don't even realize most people don't even realize that, that there were, you know, 15, you know, Puerto Rican political prisoners until very recently, and that they served between 15 and 36 years for sedition because of their involvement in the Puerto Rican independence movement. So, you know, I come out of, I come out of definitely a, a life of struggle and um, ended up in the United States as a consequence of U.S. public policy in Puerto Rico. You, um, the the Operation Bootstrap had, you know, several uh, elements to it. You know, one of them was the sterilization of Puerto Rican women, and my mother was, in fact, one of those women who was sterilized at 19 years old in the middle of labor, asked to sign a consent. Um, you know, just all sorts of stuff that we've seen women of color go through, poor women of color uh, deal with, um, and. Um, One of the other pieces was around getting workers, you know, getting people off the island, you know, essentially, and as cheap labor within the United States. So um, my mother ended up coming to the United States. She was a seamstress. Um, and we actually ended up in California because my mother couldn't deal with the cold of, uh, you know, New York or, or Chicago. You know, she's like, you know, I mean, she's a Caribbean baby, you know, it's like <laughs> we don't do cold well. <laughs> so we ended up in, in California. But, at the top, you know, all, 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 like like for all people, we all have histories and especially those histories of migration. So my grandmother married four. Um, uh, a soldier, a, that a lifer, you know, an army soldier who's a lifer stationed in Puerto Rico. And so she had married him and come to California. So that's how my mother ended up coming to California. I ended up growing up in East Los Angeles. So very interesting being a Boricua <laughs> growing up in, in East Los Angeles. And people, you know, often don't realize all these, you know, they, that even within um the Latino and Latina community there, you know, there, there's these different communities, the Mexicano, Chicano community, which is the largest um, community, the Mexican-American right. Chicano community is the largest in the United States. I mean, 60% of all those that might be, you know, classified as Latino, Latina, or some people use the term Latinx. Um, but, you know, as a Boricua, <laughs> it, was, it was a, a, a kind of, you know, multiple displacements and growing up in, in that in that context. But at least we spoke Spanish. We under, you know, there there was the, we we right. spoke it differently, which is how we were able to tell where people are from, right? Because language is always yeah. used as a way to kind of define. we in fact racism. The the earliest, you know, of um, um, uh, uh, <laughs> the, the words like coming I mean, to that that the earliest manifestations that. What I want to say, manifestation of racism actually happens in terms of language. You know, so lang the language of the barbarics, the, the barbarians, in terms of Rome and all of that. So it's a very, it's kind of an interesting thing how language often doesn't. You know, the the importance of language and the racialization of populations is often not, not, not engaged. So all of these experiences, the experiences of migration, growing up in poverty, growing up on welfare, having three children before I'm, you know, I'm. 20 years old, you know, uh, and and really, you know, trying to struggle for a better life, but at the same time being very, very conscious of the realities in which I was, you know, immersed in the conditions that my mother was trying to survive in, and, and the impact of colonization on my mother's psychology and the psychology of my family. So there's a lot, you know, what people would call dysfunction, I would call, I would Move to Fanon's notion that their response was actually a logical response to the impact of structural trauma of colonization on their lives. Um, so growing up in all of that, you know, is part of who I am, and 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 where my work stems from. I think that you know that's maybe I'll stop there.
0: <laughs> so that that fashion is interesting when you mention language. Uh, one of the you know one, one of the great African authors, Chinua Achobe talks about the language of liberation and yeah. how in and very much similar to what we're talking about now uh and in in african nations french english dutch became a language that everyone could speak and everyone so many dialects um mm. and it's interesting the caribbean you know so um i grew up <laughs> in a neighborhood where dominicans would be definitely questioning the spanish of uh Puerto Ricans and Puerto Ricans uh, uh, back across the way um, and and, and uh, this this beauty of language this 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 our mother tongues.
1: Right. But oh. I think what, what's so interesting about language, right, Jesse, I mean, just your example is that, you know, there's this tendency to try to, to the, the whole, it, we, you know, when we think about the beginning of written language, for example, the codification of language, it re- really was a power move by Spain. And I mean, there was, there was, it's was a power move to codify language in order to control. So it's very, very interesting. You know, on one hand, we love language and, and, and the codification right. of it, you know, the writing of it, but we also have to, understand that, you know, because we end up coming from a writing kind of society, that we come from this kind of literate, literate, it it changes the way we think. And it changes the way how we make sense of the world as compared to people who come from an oral tradition. And there's a tendency to think that somehow the oral tradition that people were less intelligent than people who were writing. But that isn't true at all. It it was just a really different way of looking at the world and, you know, how history is told within oral traditions, you know, is a living history. So, so it, you know, it there's not a sense of of codifying it in this really, you know, kind of rigid, you know, way. It's understanding that that actually we understand history and history keeps evolving and our understanding it keeps evolving as we continue to evolve as human beings. That sense of historicity in the oral tradition is actually far more present and far more alive, you know, than it is in the codified history that we're used to thinking of as history,
0: right? I, I, uh,
1: and I, language is the same thing. That's what I wanted to, to get back it's,
0: to. It's a living thing. It's when uh, uh, I spent a significant amount of time uh, teaching and working with Tohono O'odham uh, students uh, on the Tohono O'odham Nation in, in Arizona. And it was really interesting. And my, my, my dissertation was really a dissertation yeah. about the liberation right. of, of what happens when you Paul Afrays. He's part of my literature review. Yeah, okay. Right. And the literature okay. review, the genitive, <laughs> genitive curriculum. Yeah. And what happened is I asked this these four basic questions to the students. What do you think reading is? They said, mm. well, it's like saying words. What do you think writing is? Putting a word on paper, spelling it correctly. And, <laughs> and I said, what do you think about school? They said it's boring. And, and 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 then I said, Well, what 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 can we do differently? What would you want to learn about? And yes. I had uh, tribal elders that were shocked at the responses of these high school yeah, students. People. They said, yeah. we want to learn about our heritage. We want, yeah. to, want to learn about our language. We want, to, we want to be able to speak our language. Right. We want to learn yeah. about our culture. We want to celebrate who we are. We don't see that in the books, in mm-hmm. their very own books that they were reading. Barbecue High School is a high school on the reservation, on the nation. Mm-hmm. And they weren't doing that. And just to come back to what happens in the story in that dissertation, this really, it is Prairie's work that influences that stuff. And it isn't a liberation pedagogy, as you say, of love. I yeah. fell in love with these students and they yeah. taught me about myself and them. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's, it's amazing what can happen. But their high school retention rate, the control group with the students who didn't participate in the program, they had a retention rate of 50%. Our students were ninety-seven point six, and I, we could only, and we don't know where others are because some people move, you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, pedagogy of love—that's
0: that. what I want to talk about because yeah. I don't see it in in our, our public schools today, and it—it's—it's right. it, it, it's hurting me.
1: I yeah, I absolutely. Oh gosh, I mean, I'm right there with you. You know, I mean, part part of the the struggle is to, I mean we can't re- really get to talk, even really engaging this question of a pedagogy of love without, you know, dealing with all of the ways in which <laughs> capitalism dehumanizes our societies and, and is absolutely implicated in the dehumanization of education. And, you know, what's really funny is like, now there's all this conversation about posthumanism and all this, and I'm like, you know, I mean, I, I'm really old you know, I realize I'm old school and I and I will hold to old school in a sense of I I, I think, you know, I understand that the academy always is pushing people to coin new words and to feel like they've got to, you know, show, you know, that, you know, they've got this innovative way of thinking. But you know what? Poverty is poverty is poverty. Oppression is oppression oppression. We've been talking about this stuff, you know, for decades. And I just I feel like Part of what happens is that, that, that because schools and universities are essentially, the hidden curriculum is that they're engines for the economy. They are not about human well-being. They are not about our happiness. They're not about creating a society of justice and a society of, of true, you know, a, a sense of solidarity and, and community. That In fact, what we're dealing with is, you know, how capitalism actually is the antithesis of love. It, it in, in many ways, is the impetus, impetus for structuring loveless relationships, love policies that, that have no sense of caring about human beings They're, that, and, and it's very easy for us to, to not even, you know, not realize because part of the hidden curriculum is almost a normalization that we, you know, normalization of poverty, a normalization of suffering, uh, that somehow we should be able, you know, that, that these things we should live side by side with people who are living on the streets and stuff, and not not be angry, not be frustrated, not not feel like we have some responsibility. Um, and so that we have to think about how the curriculum, you know, you're going back to schools as things of, you know, relationship to to um how do we get to a pedagogy of love? Well we, you know, we can't get there without dealing with the fact that we have structures that that actually alienate us, they alienate us from relationships, from from intimacy, a sense of intimacy and closeness and caring about one another, this, you know, just... Strident kind of form of individualism, you know, just do your own work. I mean, and this competition. So this epistemology of war, this epistemology of competition, of debate, of it's an it's it's an epistemology of the West that actually is part of the of the struggles that we're dealing with because we're we're in an educational system where policies and practices and the pedagogy is completely, you know, um, being fueled by this Eurocentric epistemology that is not about community and it is not about justice. It is about, you know, profit and accumulation and how you, how do you prime these children to accept, you know, the, the imperatives of capitalism and the imperatives of capitalist, you know, society. I mean, I, I I just, I'll stop with this one. But, you know, I, there was a um, an, a recent Oxfam report, and that just blew my mind. And you probably have seen this, but, you know, it, it was eight men, right? Eight men in the world own more wealth than 3.6 billion people. That's half of the world's population. Eight men own more wealth than half of the world's population. And the richest have twice as much wealth as 6.9 billion people, right? While almost, you know, half of humanity is living on $5, a little over $5 a day. Something about the way, you know, um, that schools are are structure, how students think, how, you know, how we enter into so-called, you know, um, citizenship in the world is, is it, it blinds us, you know, it, it has to blind us to the impact of the, the greed and lovelessness and immorality of perpetuating economic apartheid. An economic apartheid exists in this country, it exists around the world. The majority of the world's population is living in poverty. And I think it's very easy for us not to see that because we get blinded and blindsided in, in, in the United States by all sorts of mechanisms. For example, the whole debt. debt, You know, people are so indebted, but they can have their TV, they can have their car, they can have all of this. And, and it's a pretense because if all those debts were called in, You'd have half of the population on the street. You know, so we have we have all these crazy ways in which the correctives of capitalism, you know, are, are, are put into play, but they create an illusion of affluence. And as a consequence, then it instead of people entering into real class struggle around demanding real justice and economic democracy you know, they, they tend to side, you know, with a kind of capitalist project of accumulation in their lives, you know, it's and aspirations.
0: Aspirations.
1: <laughs> like, aspirations. Oh, my God. Uh, don't
0: even... we're, we're talking about this the day after GOP senators blocked the Equal Rights Amendment.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I mean, we're talking about this just the day after when, um, I don't know if we're similar ages, but when I was young, the Equal Rights Amendment was going on from state to state, yeah, and um, yeah. uh, a woman, will, uh, Phyllis Shapley, a conservative. Oh yeah,
1: I remember Phyllis. The women I was Seventy-one. In so I. <laughs>
0: yeah. Okay, your sons, yeah. your daughters will go to war. <laughs> right. If okay, this amendment, and now I'm saying they are going to war. They are wearing. <laughs> they are flying out planes. They are on the front lines. Right. Uh, what's stopping this now? But uh, I, I want to come to this this piece about. And recently, in this past summer, I was in Dublin at the European Literacy Conference. And I did a presentation with a colleague of mine. Yeah, yeah. It was about our literacy center. And I was really focusing on the equity. Here I can control things. I can give every child uh, a certified teacher, give them all what we call Tier 3 intervention, one-to-one tutoring, the best practice. It's beautiful. It's a library. I, I fought for 40 years to get this this place done. And, and somehow, God was good to me and said, I'm going to give you a beautiful place and and I'm going to give you. And so we were sharing some of the things and of course, culturally relevant pedagogy. I'm sharing how that inspires uh, our children too. So uh, it's funny, the uh, Dreamers by Yuri Morales is a beautiful children's book. So you have a a Mexican mother married to an American know, she writes a book Dreamers. She is, She's married to an American. She's, she's not a dreamer. She writes this book in Florida, in Florida, in Douglas County, Florida. They banned the book. They banned Roberto Clemente. You're from Puerto Rico. to it, it, Banning Roberto Clemente is like banning Jesus in, in, in Latin communities in Florida. But, <laughs> but to come back to this point, when I was there, there was something that, that I did say to them. They, they said, well, this seems like good practice because in Europe, the poorer the community the more money the school will get mm. so it isn't in america we spend 23 billion dollars more on our wealthy affluent and, and white schools let's get it right. straight right. that's what uh-huh. we do every single year and it's been well documented
1: yeah. that yes.
0: doesn't happen anymore in europe at one time it did mm-hmm. but now it doesn't so they looked at me they said well okay we get this and they said you know it seems similar to what we do here you know, it, it makes sense to us. That's really nice and we like what you're doing. And we right. do have that issue of culturally relevant pedagogy. We have uh, Turks, Algerians, we have Syrians. We we have people from all over, Polish people, because uh, people forget that Poles have, have migrated to Western Europe for better lives too. And right, all that right. stuff.
1: Uh-huh. And,
0: and they, they talked about the power. They said, we we, we, we hear you. We, we we work on that ourselves here. Right. And, and, and then they said, well, well, but you also, you talked about this $23 billion more for wealthy no. schools. Right, right. And they said, uh-huh. did anyone, does anyone tell them that's unethical? That was the lady from Norway. No. She says, don't tell anyone to, then the lady from Finland said, should not somebody be in jail? So this is the question that I think Paulo Freire uh, no. really right. brought to our focus. If we yes. love those we teach.
1: yes. Yes.
0: Then, then, how could we not give them equity? How right. could we not give them a curriculum that is meaningful yeah. to them? So, could you talk about Freire's influence on 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 life? But today, how we need Paulo Freire more than ever.
1: <laughs> oh God, I, I I think you know, I mean, I mean, there's a number you know of ways to kind of engage, lady. I mean for for me, it's interesting because making it the connection to love, you know, it was like Beatty's work. I mean, that was the first time that I as a student came, you know, this working class, poor working class student, that I came across anyone who spoke about it in education that spoke about love. Right. And he spoke about it very unabashedly. And he spoke about it, you know, as part of a vocation to be human, to love and how love was a, a central ingredient, in essence, to dialogue. Like we could not have dialogue without love. We could not have dialogue. We could not have solidarity without love. We could not create community if we can't come commun- if we if dialogue requires love and and community requires dialogue, then we can't have community without love. And so then, we, you know, in terms of our capacity to be involved in terms of struggle, we can't have the kind of unity that we need in struggle without love. So this, the, this aspect of love within education and, and how he was able to, you know, in essence, articulate the alienation of banking education. Because if we think of alienation in another way, if we think of alienation as a loveless a loveless phenomenon that alienation pushes us away from each other it disconnects us from each other and if we think of love as that which connects us as that which brings us together right then we begin to understand this how you know his notion of banking education was linked to his belief that that in order for us to to create a liberatory education, an education where we in fact could bring um, a sense of, of we could we could support and create the conditions for voice and for participation, right? For solidarity, that we needed to be able to bring in love as this motivational and political force in our classroom, in our working communities, in our, in our, in our social movement work. Right, that it that that I mean, that for me is so central when I read his work. So it really, you know, brings forth. And then I think often, you know, Fowler would talk about uh, this sense of you know the freedom to be, you know, the freedom to be, and 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 that. Um, that part of what a humanizing education is, is that it creates the conditions for the, the, for the freedom to be, for st- the students to find themselves and to be who they are and to, to be able to be authentic, right? The sense of authenticity that, that, of course, to be authentic, there has to be conditions of acceptance, conditions of feeling that, that you know, feeling valued, feeling that, 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 one, that one has to contribute is meaningful. Right. That's what that's what you know, when when you engage with students in that way, that is that is loving them. It's, a, it's the same way with ourselves. I mean, to love ourselves means that we value ourselves, we respect ourselves in the same way we, we do it with each other. So there's this very in, in, in interesting and important dialectical relationship between how we treat ourselves and treat each other. And so we, we gotta think about how we live in a society that sometimes, you know, if it's a loveless society, it actually teaches us that we're not good enough, you know that 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 somehow you know we need all these products in order to be worthy, right? So that we buy buy. I mean, it's a totally consumer-driven society, and and how it works is on our psychology around alienating us, so that we keep thinking that the answer to our happiness, right, or our connectivity, or our connection or relationship is out there in the world rather than with each other and within ourselves. So I, I, around this question of freedom, you know, I I, I was. I was reading this um, uh, Graber and, and Winron's work. They, they were they're actually socialist anarchists, and I love their work. But you know, I, it, I realized that that what 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 Paulo was about is he understood that there's these freedoms that in any situation where there's authoritarian relationships or there's fascism, there's four freedoms that are usually being repressed, and one of the one of those freedoms is the freedom to say yes or no without reprisal without retaliation, that you can say yes or no, right? You have a choice. Um, The freedom for physical movement, the ability, you know, to move across borders, the the ability to move into different neighborhoods, the ability, you know, so when physical, the freedom of physical movement, and then there's the freedom of to participate creatively, right? You know, because human beings, we are creative, you know, and you're as a teacher, you know, when you're uh, no. looking for in our students is we're looking that brilliance of that creativity that they're bringing and they want to be creative. But it's when we when that creativity is stunted, is that 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 there's a dullness because they shut down. It's not that it isn't there, it isn't the creativity isn't there or the brilliance isn't there, is that they, that human beings shut down because we're organisms and certain, you know, we're living organisms and, and we're made to survive. As so if we're under constant assault, we will shut down. You know, so this, this sense of the to participate creatively. And then the fourth one he talked about was the freedom of sexual expression. So then we think here, oh my gosh, of course, when we think about fascist societies, all those are very rigid. Either rigidly disciplined and rigidly policed, yeah. right? And within classrooms, those are rigidly, you know, uh, disciplined and policed. <laughs> so I, I, I think Freddie had this. You know, there was all just a brilliance to his understanding of. You know, that that the struggle to be, to be as individuals and to be as collective communities, as cultural beings, to 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 connect with each other in these very different ways. And the fact that, you know, unity didn't mean we had to be uniform. <laughs> you, you know, it, it it was our capacity to be with difference and that we need a difference. And, and you know, all the work that's been done around biodiversity, that actually biodiversity is what brings aliveness. Right. To all organisms, including us as living beings, right? So, it, I, it I so, us. Let me stop there, right? Because there's like so much I can more I can say. You know, as a dialogue. So,
0: if we, if it's it's interesting that both of us not only been academics, researchers, uh, but we've been activists. So in in terms of its influences, I'm trying to help, I always try to help Mm -hmm. my educators know how rich it is to hear the stories and narratives of others and their struggles. So in 1910, when No Child Left Behind came out and they were gonna spend a trillion dollars on nonsense and they focused $250 billion would be focused on testing and new standards and and curriculums. Uh, And I knew what that meant.
1: And it was
0: Obama was in then, and Mm -hmm. Secretary Duncan was in. So Mm -hmm. I thought we got rid of that when George Bush was gone. Mm -hmm. And I had two years and I had a a semi-pro basketball player become the United States Secretary of Education. Mm -hmm. And my Mm -hmm. colleagues were like saying, what can we do, what can we do? And so here's how the narratives of others can enrich our lives. I knew that Cesar Chavez marched with Filipino farm workers, hmm. some 370 miles, you know? And hmm. at the time, maybe nobody was paying attention. Maybe <laughs> right. a couple of news, maybe, maybe just the Filipino you know, farm workers. Gallo certainly wasn't paying attention. But I, I knew that because my teachers had shared, shared with me uh, their stories, their struggles. The, just, this agenda is not some kind of, it's an agenda of truth. That's what love is in it. But because I knew Cesar Chavez's story and I knew Dr. King's story, I knew the Selma story. I go to Selma every other year for the, for the, for the bridge cross and jubilee. And, and, and <laughs> I just, I said, we can't do anything. I was at NCTE. They said, yeah. we can't do anything. I said, we can walk. We can walk because of Cesar Chavez. And I was 50 pounds heavier than I am now. I had been athletes who just got old. And
1: right. I remember when you yeah. did that. Yeah. I, just,
0: I was growing, and, and I said I'm going to walk, and my and my wife said, you, you, know, "You better let the younger people walk." And I remember <laughs> I calculated, my, I prayed that it was 370 miles because I think I, I think that says our distance, mm-hmm. and I prayed, but it wasn't. It was 400. So I said 400. <laughs> and being the old biblical person, my mother's, you know, a church-going lady. said, Forty days, you know, for forty days and forty, 40. nights. Jesus yeah. roamed the desert for forty days, and so I timed it four hundred miles to be forty days, That's and great. I started walking, and and that walk I and, and that activism. So you also have done. You're not just an academic. Tell us yeah. a little bit about some of that 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 activism. That it's just a,
1: you know, I mean, I've been involved in a, in a lot of different you know uh, um, movements in in over the years um, I mean we you know we've dealt a whole lot around anti-immigrant issues um education of course I mean you know fighting against testing I am not a testing I I, I completely I mean I mean against I'm I'm against testing I'm against homework I think it's all of these ridiculous uh practices that are part of trying to structure and control you know say so the they're, they're forms of of, of preparing children to accept you know a kind of social control that actually does not work in their interests and you know and it's rationalized in all these weird kind of ways and yet there's so much research that shows that you know homework is just the children need to play so it's a really interesting kind of you know situation that that they're giving them homework, but they're taking away from what children actually need. They need free time to play for imagination, curiosity, and all of that. And part of the struggle we have now is a manner in which technology has usurped that space, which is... I mean to me it's so frustrating when you when you realize that technology comes out of the military. You know, I mean, you, you when you do this is kind of res- historical and kind of looking at the roots of technology. And and as much as we love technology, we have to have a critique of technology because I think there's some real issues that happens when you're when kids are spending all this time in front of a screen. And that's how they're growing up, you know, in terms of their 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 um Free time on a screen—it has an impact of how they think the world and how it begins to disconnect them. So that things are happening right down the street, and they may not even be aware of it. They're so tied up in TikTok and you know all this stuff. And I don't want to—I don't want to sound like I, you know, I'm not dissing it. I'm just saying that we have to have a critical understanding that we have to put some limits on this stuff because it, in fact, is dehumanizing. At the end, it is very dehumanizing in that it separates us from the world. And it disconnects us from each other. And the lie is that, you know, even the, the, I mean, I love Facebook, you know, friends. But, you know, that that's not, like, that's the, the definition of friendship. No, real friendship takes engagement with each other. Real friendship is embodied. It, it, we need to be in each other's company. I mean, why did kids suffer so much after the pandemic and being in isolation? You know, I mean, a high rate of suicide am, among, you know, youth or suicide attempts, because then they go out, they lost those two years of critical socialization at a very critical developmental age, right? And then, you know, felt high anxiety, like they didn't know, you know, how to navigate it. And, and people were not, the adults were not ready to really help them, to, in, in a, to, like, to midwife them back, you know, into, into the social network and the social engagement. Um, because they had spent so much time on screens. So I mean, we have we've got to be willing to to look at, you know so many elements that are problematic and and have a you know, a critical eye as to what are the limits of its benefits, right? Because if we don't if we're not willing to do that kind of analysis, we're actually setting up our kids for terrible, terrible lives. I mean, kids are are struggling now and And part of what what we' are, we've got to come to terms with is you know how long are we going to accept this nightmare of capitalism that is destroying the planet, that is destroying our relationships, that is destroying our communities and and you know they, they, i mean I, I'm not saying that there are people, uh, there are efforts, people are doing efforts, but what I find is that even even our, our efforts to stay connected with each other is a lot harder. So our activism, at one time, you know, if we got thousands of people out in the street, it used to mean something. Now wealth is so consolidated among a few that, that their attitude is kind of like, oh, you know, we'll just wait for the crazies to go home. Kind of thing. I mean that, like they'll just wait it out, and they own the means of production. They own the 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 means of communication. So there there are ways in which we have to think more more multidimensionally about social struggles. So that a lot of the conversations with with comrades, when I've been like I was in I was just in South Africa, and then I was in England and Scotland, and in France, and you know, so much of the conversation is around how do we begin to think differently about social struggle, you know, how to more multidimensionally. So we know we've got to get, we're still getting on the streets is important to bringing us together, but it isn't enough to bringing about larger transformative change. So really engaging in really multidimensional ways. And so I think about, for example, how do we do that online? How do we do that on the streets? How do we do that in education? How do we create places for people to be in dialogue, at a time where neoliberalism has, in, has destroyed in many ways the public forums or the pu- the places where people used to meet publicly without having to pay 150 dollars to be, in, you know, in an arena or something like that. Um, how do we begin bring you know creating new public spaces for real conversations and for for our for opportunities to labor together, for me, being involved in, in women's movements and all of these different, you know, um, uh, being involved in independent media and creating independent media with communities and students, you know, re- creating radio programs and, you know, and and all these different um, activities, I, it was in that labor that everyday labor of making things happen together that we build solidarity and that we build a sense of intimacy with democracy with real democratic life how do we create democratic life we do it in vivo we have to do it in the relationships that's where the classroom is i mean and i think paulo understood this that you know we have an opportunity within classrooms to create a mini-cosm of of a true living democracy and so it means then that we have to think about what is the world that we want to live in? What is the kind of world we want for our children and our grandchildren, right? And, and then how do we create that in our classroom? right? So that we begin, so we, we've got to think differently. We've got to, we've got to think of what are, what are the practices that are necessary to create a new kind of conditioning, a new way of thinking with our students so that they have that experience that it's possible that it is possible to create a democratic, you know, environment where their bodies are honored, their minds are respected, you know, where their emotions are seen as meaningful, you know, where their spirits can come, you know, can can, can have opportunities for creativity and for engaging, and that all of their fullness, their full humanity then can, can be experienced as a kind of revolutionary presence that often is, I mean, like we don't think about it, that's what they try to take away from us, our revolutionary presence. Because in revolutionary presence, it's a transformative presence. You know, we come in contact with each other, we have the capacity to be open to transform each other because we're willing to listen to each other, we're willing to take each other seriously. We don't necessarily have to always agree, but we take each other seriously with respect and dignity. And that that is a kind of culture the you know kind of living culture of a, of an embodied pedagogy of love that we need in our classrooms and that we need in our work and so wherever i've worked with students or communities those that has been what has been behind you know what i do and it was interesting when you were talking about your students you know that the, the, uh, you know i mean the the, the the kind of achievement of your students and people are like it's like I mean, I graduated 99% of my doctoral students. That's almost an unheard thing. I mean, I never thought about it until, until I retired, you know, and people were like, but what I realized is that what, you know, what you've accomplished with your students, and then this, it, it, it's with, you've done it with them. You know, I, I accomplished it with my students. They did their dissertation. You know, I wasn't, it's was like I'm superizing, but for me, we created communities of learning together. And so what ended up happening was that students were doing work that was meaningful to them they were able to ask questions that that had real applicability for them in their work in their lives and in their communities and it made a huge difference because then it took them out of the you know just total abstracted you know kind of realm and it really brought it down to our to a living process of learning in and co-creation so I think all of those, it's not just the classroom. It, we have to do it in all our lives, in our families, in our community work, right? In our, in our social justice work. We need to bring those same principles of life. We don't, do, we don't become this you know, embodied pedagogical human being in the classroom and then we go out and do something else. That, that's just, that's not the way it works. It is a living pedagogy that we need to bring to every single relationship that we're in with our children, our grandchildren, our friends, our neighbors, you know, the people that, that we come in contact. And Paolo had this incredible capacity. I mean, he just had to, you know, he just, he had such a capacity to embrace humanity. It didn't mean he always agreed with everything that people, but he had a capacity to embrace it and, and to listen and to respect the differences in which in the ways in which people thought about the world, and he realized that our very conditions had so much to do with how we made sense of the world, which is why we had to be in dialogue so that we could understand and listen to each other. And, and I think that one of the pieces that often gets lost is we are all partial human beings. Like our, our knowledge, every single one of us is partial in terms of what our knowledge nobody knows it all and what's crazy in the academy is that you know it's a culture of who's the smartest person in the room i mean it's just so absolutely frustrating because it's a competitive culture of of debate but it's a competitive culture of war is what it is so rather than, than engaging with how do we find our commonality to struggle together, to learn together, to co-create a better world together? It's about you know who who's getting credit for this word or you know who coined that word and who owns this theory, as if anybody could really own a theory. I mean, really, you know. So it's it's you know this I mean it's it's all how capitalism works to commodify and create products out of things that aren't products, right? So so copyright, yeah. I mean, it's, it's just. I, it 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 just perpetuates this notion of individualism when the truth is none of us are individuals. None of us. I mean, there. You know, I I remember there was a quote that that Martin Luther King said something to the effect, you know, that before we, you know, when we get up in the morning, you know, none of us, half of the world, we 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 are dependent on half of the world. You know, in terms of our clothing, our food, you know, our water. I mean, just everything. And, re- and thinking that we're individuals actually works in the interest of capitalism rather than understanding that we are communal beings. We need each other. And it is through each other that we are able to create a different type of world, right? When we don't, we don't, you know, we don't liberate each other. I mean, I follow, that was a really clear aspect of, it. we do not liberate each other. The, what, what, what the, we don't, you know, I can't liberate you. The way that, it, it's a sense that we, we, we don't liberate ourselves alone either. So we have to be in community. Liberation is a communal phenomenon. We, you know, in community, we come to social consciousness. In community, we come to an understanding of what it means to participate in human liberation. And
0: it reminds me of uh, when I'm working with my K 12 teachers. I always remind them of the work of Dr. Rudine Simsbit. Uh-huh. So she talks about literature as being mirrors, yeah. where we see ourselves in books, yeah. where we <laughs> windows that we see each other, we see into other lives and the sliding doors. And, and it's interesting. A lot of my, my, my educators talk about the mirrors and the windows and, you know, so that we see each other, yeah. we see ourselves and we yeah. see others. Yeah. But Rudine Sims added that sliding doors because she said there are some books, there yeah. are some books that 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 lift that put us in the shoes of another. Yeah. And so when yeah. I was talking with my teachers this week in New Britain, I said, one of those <laughs> books for me was Isabella Jende's, uh-huh. you, know, uh, you know, House of Spirits. And yeah. I said, our know, <laughs> airport. And I'm reading the end part where they're discovering the bodies, agendas, you know, mass graves, and, mm-hmm. and, and I'm crying. I'm a mad, you know, mad, crying in the airport. I throw my jacket over me so I'm hiding the tears. You know, I'm in the sliding door of Isabel's world, and <laughs> and, and, and I'm I can't stop reading yeah. over there. And 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 see when Rudine Sims Bishop talks about transformation of literature. She says you have to do the sliding doors. You uh-huh, have that's... to have the books uh-huh. that take that put people in the shoes of another. So mm-hmm. we can be in the shoes of a dreamer. Mm-hmm. We could be in the shoes of a trans, like that legislator who is silenced mm-hmm. in, in being elected. I mean, we've got we had two black legislators in Tennessee uh, because they they shouted out on a bullhorn. You know, after the the second mass shooting in their in their community, <laughs> right, you know, right, right, right. in the house, yeah. and they get expelled. This stuff. So, so I'm kind of uh, it. It's that that idea that that very offered us a genitive curriculum. Rudine Sims Bishop says, "Hey, I've got a path. It doesn't have to be that complicated. Yeah. You you just need to <clears throat> children need to see themselves in books. They need to see each other because that makes them." Better. And, and if we can walk in the shoes, and Rudine Sims uh, is a friend, and she used to say, Jesse, we need these for people like you. Yeah. I said, well, 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 I get this. She's going, Don't... Your community, particularly uh, our Anglo community, white males, you have an over exaggeration of your value. <laughs> this could save you. This could, and she, she would say, This could save us in the in the police shootings. This could save us. In, in the law case. This could save us in so many ways. She said, those sliding doors are, are, are of value to everyone, but most important to you. So in terms of if if we were to think about what what books, and maybe we, we won't do children's books and young people's books, but what books should our our our, our teachers, our undergraduates, our graduates and our doctorals, what should they be reading today? Because I'm gonna tell you, I'm talking to my students and I'm like what do you mean? You heard a polar phrase. You got a quote from Goodreads, but you haven't read Pedagogy of the Press. You, you haven't read. You haven't read Antonio Dodar's work. You haven't read Iris Shores' work. You, well, I don't understand this. How could you? So let's think about almost like if we had to give what books should they be reading today in order to transform us? Make that more. That, that, you you use the word humanity so uh, multiple times today. How can we make the world more loving, more humane? What books should my my teachers, my graduate students and my PhD students, what should they be reading?
1: You know, I I I think that it, it's funny. It it I, my relationship with books is like like relationship with people it's like what are the books that come you know that that come to me that end up that people tell me about or that 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 people introduce me to that I I care about rather than you know just having a prescription of books I mean I can say you know well, you know I, I would love people to read my work I would love people to read Bell hooks's work I would love people to to read the work you know in decolonizing education um, you know, Lee Patel's work and other people's work I mean it's all of that is important Um, it it you know Octavia Butler's work you know I mean, it takes you to a whole different realm but I'd also love them to read you know uh, Gabor Matei's work on on you know the the myth of normal and on his work uh, you, I mean which really does a, a great job of talking about childhood and Within the context of um, of capitalism and 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 you know why trauma, how trauma, structural trauma, you know impacts our lives. I mean, there's so many, and you know, I've been thinking a lot. Of, like for example, the, this this whole notion of fighting the good fight. You know, <laughs> move not not from not as a war as a war, but. <laughs> But but as a struggling together, you know, in a good way that demands us then to live our lives very differently and to actualize, you know, both social and material change and, in the conditions that, that teachers face. And and so I I think of this at that how how do we go undergo then a revolutionary process, right, of redefining ourselves and as, as individuals and collective beings. And, you know, how do we, how do we take the process of our own lived experience? Because that's, you know, what you're talking about, how books are are trying to be like witnesses of lived experience. Um, and how do we, you know, do this with students and with comrades? And so we can do that through books and books are wonderful, you know, different books call us. And so one book that that I recently read was this book by Firestone around wounds to wisdom and the reason I love that book is that I, out of it I could flesh out loosely I don't know if you've read it but um, you know I mean of course she she's a rabbi and bench but she was looking at the psychological impact of holocaust on holocaust survivors but there's many you know many elements of it that move across oppressed communities so I and mean, the reason I, I thought about it is because of power of stories that you were talking about, right? So she was talking about how part some of the principles are how do we face openly and honestly our historical positionality, which is is talking about kind of, you know, how do we tell the stories, the silent stories of our collective suffering? You know, and that in in some of those books you're talking about, you know, it's like what has been silenced, what has not been. What, what has not been said, what has been invisibilized. And then how do we harness our suffering, you know, through developing this intimate understanding of our vulnerabilities and how do we then impact our capacity for connection and solidarity? You know, so, you know, how do we find stories that, how do we tell our stories and how do we engage with stories that try to talk about? those those issues and then how do we build together new communities of struggle by opening ourselves to the unknown and embracing our what paula called our unfinishedness right it's because we're unfinished that we have the possibility of you know learning from books and learning from new ideas and new ways but also Imagining a whole different kind of world and embracing, you know, uh, supportive and really loving relationships. And then another of the principles is how do we overcome our tendencies to blame and to scapegoat or dehumanize? Um, And so we have to, you know, understanding that time that often we do that because we feel helpless, you know, and so it's easier to just say, oh, you know, it's just white folks, you know, and essentialize white folks as a racialized group when, you know, and completely miss. That, all, that human beings suffer across all communities, that there are, there are forms of inequality and class inequality and, and you know, horrendous conditions that exist that are actually more shared among people, working class people across all communities than, than people within a community in comparison to the elite. The elite, you know, uh, the elite, the
0: elite. in their own
1: communities, that's you know, I mean, is... it, there's more there's more similarities in working class people across communities than there is with our own community of people who are affluent. And so part of being able to to fight then against our own helplessness and, and being able to call for the, a kind of change that's going to halt um, the violence. are
0: going to have to stop us there. We're coming to the end, that just means we have to do another show. Oh, my Antonio. gosh. Not, That's really all that so means. Much. We need to be together. I, I know. Have been That's and right. Blessed, <laughs> and I feel privileged to be talking oh. to an activist, a scholar, a poet, a, a woman whose work has inspired <laughs> my own work. I want to say thank you. Oh, you're so thank welcome. You. Thank you. I think Harry's <laughs> going to be playing that music soon.
1: Yes. Pretty um, soon, certain, but it's eight fifty-five. <laughs>
0: ah, yes. Well, you know, he, he hit me with the you have one minute to go, and I, I tend to get caught up in these these conversations. Yeah. I'm not always a good host. But
1: thank you. There we you. go. <laughs> uh, adiós. Adiós.
0: Yeah. As I got another rhyme, another rhythm for y'all to listen. I'm never quitting on my mission. I'm going roll with what I'm giving. Got some ambition, this new addition, filling positions. Looking at the void in myself and feeling what's missing. Better watch the way you're going. Better go in the right this direction. In Holmes, the moment,
1: you're to you stressing what you're going be. Got
0: blessing. And I know that for certain. Keep on working. Open curtains. Hater's hey, working. Because they ain't ready for your final version. Whoa. I'm never going to give up. Give up.